<laughs> yeah, I'll start right now. <laughs> Daniel, we're going to start in just a second. Three, two, one. Welcome to the dive table. I'm Jay Gardner, and with me is our fifth co-host of season two, coming all the way from across the country now that I am settled in San Diego. You are literally across the country in mm. Maryland, Mr. Greg Wolf. And Greg, I'm so glad you've agreed to join the show. You and I have had some great conversations. In fact, we were just chatting it up for like half an hour before we even hit record about all kinds of things. But yeah. uh, we've had a lot of conversations about life, scuba, and the topics of our episodes, which I found very interesting, this whole underwater archaeology thing. And so you are currently studying to become an official, certified, whatever the word would be, licensed <laughs> credential there we go yeah you academia folk uh credentialed underwater archaeologist but you've had a lot of life experience prior to this including being in the military uh being a scuba instructor being a firefighter uh scraping barnacles off of boats all kinds of crazy things so i am really excited you're here i'm excited to learn more from you have some conversations about underwater archaeology and, and what has drawn you to it. But before we get too far in this episode, why don't you take a minute, introduce yourself to the listeners out there, let them know who you are, where you're at, anything you want to say. The, the, the table is yours. All right. Yeah. Um, so this being a scuba diving podcast, I guess I could sort of start off on my my own personal story and journey uh, as far as diving goes and kind of how I got here and decided to pursue underwater archaeology as a future career. I'm still in school and still working towards finishing that up. But um, my my passion for diving started from, through my dad, which I think is pretty common for a lot of people. He was a dive master at a local shop up on Long Island. Um, and I remember as a kid, like seven, eight, nine years old he would leave the house early in the morning on weekends to go help out with classes and go on diving trips and little excursions out on long island um and he used to like keep his uh gear like hung up like his bc on a hanger down in the basement and stuff so as a little kid i would like put it on and stick the inflator hose in my <laughs> mouth and pretend that i was like swimming underwater and you know going on these grand adventures as if i was like in sea hunt <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, back then, uh, you had to be 12 years old. I think the age actually changed to 10 now for most training agencies to get certified. Um, but back in 2007, it was 12 years old. So on my 12th birthday, I asked if I can get scuba lessons. Um, and so he got me like a student packet that I, it's actually still in the basement of my parents. house. Actually, no, I might have it on the shelf behind me. Um, but it was like this little like student package. It came with like a DVD and the manual and I jumped right on it. And, then, uh, that following summer in 2007, um, I got my junior open water license and, uh, spent summers diving with my dad. Uh, one year when I was 14 or 15, we went to Mexico and Playa, I think, and did uh, a couple of dives down there. So um, cool. Yeah, that was Good memories. Uh, I, I took a break from diving and when I hit high school, I got involved in, you know, sports and other things at high school age kids. Ladies. Getting... <laughs> Academics. Uh, 
<laughs> no, biology mystery <laughs> no, uh, uh. no i was a horrible student um i was by far not a good high school student at all um which is probably why i ended up joining the marine corps instead of going to college um so i actually graduated half a year early uh so i graduated half a year early just so i could leave for boot camp sooner and then i ended up hurting myself and had to wait until the end of the summer to ship off for boot camp anyway. Uh, but after going through training and all that stuff for about a year, I got stationed down in North Carolina at Camp Lejeune. And uh, one day after hanging out in the barracks, bored out of my mind with nothing to do, I walked into my, the, not my local dive shop, but the dive shop down there right off base and uh, signed up for a refresher course because I hadn't been diving in a couple of years. And uh, that's where I met. Uh, my good friend of mine, Danny, who now owns that dive shop down in Jacksonville, um, and basically went from zero to hero with him from, uh, did my refresher and my advanced with him, went all the way up to dive master, uh, got out of the Marine Corps, went back home, and then I went back down there to see him again that following summer to do my IDC and IEC through the shop and became a recreational instructor that way. Um, and then while I was up in New York, um, after I became an instructor, I started teaching out of a shop in, on Long Island. And uh, I joined my local volunteer fire department who had a dive team. So I got involved in firefighting and public safety diving and EMS through that, as well as some uh, actual public safety diver training through the shop that I was now teaching for. Um, the owner of that shop and I basically had an agreement where... Uh, you know, I taught for him and I did classes for him and I helped out around the shop. And instead of paying me, I would get to sit in on all these dive classes whenever he was teaching them. So I got to do a lot of uh, public safety related training with different fire departments and um, like the New Jersey task force and uh, fire departments in Connecticut and all across Long Island. Um, a couple police departments. Um, I actually taught the open water portion of the scuba classes for a couple of the guys on the NYPD dive team because they had to get it before they would go to the police diver academy. So that was really cool asking them about like what that process for trying out for that team was and, you know, uh, meeting some of those guys and looking at pictures of them, like jumping out of helicopters and stuff. It was really neat. That's awesome. Yeah, it was uh, really cool. And um, my wife decided to join the Air Force after I got out of the Marine Corps. So she was in California basically that whole time um, out in Monterey. And uh, when she got stationed over here in Maryland, I moved down with her. It was, she was over in California at like the height of COVID. So like moving over there and being with her before we were married, the military has like a weird complex thing when it comes to like military spouses and moving them under the government's dime and everything. But basically that all got frozen um, during mm. COVID. So I had to, basically fly out there every couple of months to see her. Um, and then when she got her orders to come here to Maryland, I moved down and been here ever since. Um, now I dive um, public safety wise for a fire department in Baltimore County as a volunteer. And uh, sort of, I still teach whenever I get students. Uh, sometimes when I get people that come to me independently or through the commercial diving company that I scrape barnacles off of boats. <laughs> uh, horrible job. Don't ever do it. Um, it's there's some real sketchy water in the Baltimore Harbor. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
You know, so, what's funny is what my first job ever, uh, I can relate a little bit, not as much, but my first job ever was dock boy <laughs> at a lake. So literally I, <laughs> it was my title, like dock boy. And there were a bunch of us that worked, you know, the summer job. And, mm. um, and, and most of it was like carrying ice from the dock to the actual marine. Cause there's like four marinas that all had to be serviced on that owned by the same company. And so, you know, the main hub one, we would, you know, ice and supplies down to the marina, you know, on the waterfront and renting mm -hmm. out fishing boats and things. But one of the, one of the jobs, um, that, that happens, uh, pre season. So everyone comes out a few weeks earlier. There was a really bad one and a really good one. So I'll start with the really good one. The good one was they bought new uh, jet skis every year. And by the state of California law, you have to put some number of hours, 10 hours on each jet ski before you can call it a rental uh, for your company. So we'd start the season, literally our job, we got paid to go ride jet skis every day, all day long for like awesome. two weeks, which is great. And then the as it relates to you, it was the, the bad part of the job, which is we had these humongous houseboats that had like hot tubs on top. I and mean, they're nicer than my house, you know, just super nice. But they get scum and nastiness on the yeah. pontoons and all that and stuff that gets stuck House on it. Houseboats are the worst. Yes, they're nasty, right? And, yeah, and, and nobody ever cleans them and they never go anywhere. You just get like, yep, like yep, forests yep. of mussels and barnacles and you're just you're fighting yep. like every inch. Yep. So we used to take a, a life jacket, flip it upside down, put it on like a diaper, basically, <laughs> <laughs> and have to float in, in these, you know, between these pontoons and sit there with scrapers and scrape all the stuff off the docks and off the, the houseboat pontoons and everything like that. So I can relate a little, we weren't in scuba, we were, we were in our life jacket, you know, diaper, but, uh, mm. but I know, I know that I did that for three summers. Um, so I, I know, uh, I know that nastiness, yeah. the, the amount I, of things that can come into the water and the color of the water changes is just, it's, it's gross. I mean, like I've gotten like up from like cleaning and scraping the bottom of boats and there'd be like dead fish just like floating right in front of me. And <laughs> it's I've had, so I, I dive for fun still, obviously. And almost all of the real life failures I've ever had on my gear has been from cleaning boats. I've had roll-offs. I've had like uh, regulators bleed, uh, breathe wet because like barnacle chunks get stuck under the diaphragm oh, in the second God. stage. Uh, so you're getting like all this like Baltimore city because like all the marinas in Baltimore, obviously it's where all the boats are. It's where we clean and just like inhaling like like aerosolized Baltimore marina water. Oh. And it's just, I, I ended up behind a full face mask. I was just getting so sick. Like every week I would get like ear infections, like every week or two. And it's great for the immune system. I mean, who knows what, like no one <laughs> get me sick now, but yeah. yeah COVID what, what was yeah, that? Like <laughs> I, I was an EMT in, in New York not like emergency stuff. I volunteered emergency um, EMS, but I mostly cared about firefighting. But as a job, I did transport EMS, which the best way I could explain it is like mass uh, medical insurance fraud. Mm. Um, where you're just like taking people in and out of nursing homes and taking <laughs> them to doctor's appointments and you're charging them like $20,000 for a five minute trip where you don't do anything. Oh my gosh. Um, but during COVID, it was all like, you know, all these people like all the medical, the, the 
quarantine procedures and there was like a lot of like transporting people to and from hospice care. I caught COVID like four times. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was horrible. Yeah. yeah. It's, I'm surprised your Baltimore Harbor didn't make you immune to. Oh, this to, was before uh, to, I started swimming. Oh, in okay. So see there, yeah. the cure to COVID is the scrape barnacles the, the in the Baltimore COVID Harbor. Is whatever runoff comes out of Baltimore city. <laughs> into the marina water the the worst thing about that lake job by the way which i'm sure exists in this as well because it was all fresh water for it was lake Mm. but you know we we had uh we called it the honey bucket but you know when you have a when you have a houseboats and houseboats out in mooring lines as well so private houseboats but the rental fleet as well they need to be pumped out right the sewage needs to be pumped out and so it all gets pumped into a floating barge basically holding container that we called the honey bucket and I remember one season that, uh, that the, uh, that, you know, they're supposed to be alarmed and they're contained. So it's, you know, there's a containment barrier around the actual container and it's off floating on a barge. Right. And when it's time to pump it out to the surface, you drag it around with the work boat and it gets pumped out and taken away. Well, the alarm system for whatever reason didn't work and someone left a pump on pumping lake water into it and so all we got was like you know the emergency hey it's overflowing and i was the first one out the door and oh my gosh the 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 stench and the it was the nastiest thing ever not to gross everybody out 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 there but but yeah and then you know that containment barrier didn't work so well we'll just put it that way i'm not naming names here but uh epa (laughs) will be all over that but uh but yeah it was it was quite a thing and you just think like that water that sits in a in a marina or in a harbor is different than the water that's everywhere else because of all the pollutants that get put into it mm-hmm. and the traffic and human traffic and so on and so forth. So I, I get it. It's that's yeah. a but hey, Baltimore's sewage system is. I mean, swimming in that water, it's not the best. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is actually something that was pointed out to a coworker of mine, but apparently, and this is kind of like cool talking about the history of it. Baltimore still has wooden sewage pipes. Apparently. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Really? So there's a, supposedly that's like still an active thing that they use. And from what I've been told is that they actually work better than like the newer metal ones. Really? Because of like how they swell up when they get wet and they stick together better than the metal ones where they're riveted together and their metal rusts and corrodes and breaks down and it leaks. Mm -hmm. I don't know how true that is. It's what I've been told. So man, the the differences between the East coast and West coast will never, uh, will never (laughs) cease to amaze me. Things that happen in Baltimore is an old city. They still got brick cobbled roads. No, I've I've been, I've hung out in Baltimore a couple times before I knew you. So otherwise we would have hung out. But all I all I really took away from Baltimore was um, a, a almost uh, un unexplainable love for Old Bay, the, the seasoning. Like oh, it's on everything. <laughs> I I could not order something without Old Bay. Oh, dude, that's so accurate. Like I I don't feel bad for talking bad about Maryland because I'm not a Maryland <laughs> native. Okay. I, Long Island. I'll even talk bad about Long Island. Uh, <laughs> but um, no, dude, that's true. Everything is crab themed or crabs, yes. crabs, Old Bay, and they all like everything has the Maryland flag pattern on it. 
Yes, yes, yes. super weird to me because, like, coming from New York, like, nobody – I there are probably more New Yorkers out there that don't actually know what the New York flag looks like. But then you come down to Maryland, and the Maryland flag pattern is on literally everything. Everything, it's, yeah. It's nuts. Yeah, no, that's what I remember. And there were these things um, called burger cookies that are sold, like, in the grocery store that are, like, these – kind of sugar cookies with basically a layer of fudge on top and uh they're amazing if you haven't had those that's a maryland thing as well we have we have good friends that live in maryland and they her uh my my wife's friend's mom so there we go <laughs> any story that starts with that's always gonna be good but she used to ship us uh you know a couple packages of burger cookies a little you know care package here and there i don't know what ever happened to that but um, and I used to go, oh my gosh, it's amazing. But yeah, Old Bay crabs, like it was like Old Bay beer, Old Bay ketchup, Old Bay, you know, French fries, old, which were pretty good. Old, I mean, everything. You could not have, you could have whatever you wanted with Old Bay as a part. I mean, Old Bay ice cream, I'm sure it exists. I, I didn't have it. It there. does. It actually does. does. Okay. I, can, I can confirm that Old Bay ice cream does exist. Uh, the Old Bay ice cream. Oh, man. Sorry, those folks out there that are from Maryland that that get it. I'm a California guy. I, I didn't, I liked it. It wasn't like this is gross, but it was just like an obsession. It was, it was a complete yeah, obsession. I can explain it. I don't know, man. It's a weird, it's a weird area to be from or live in i guess <laughs> well good so let's roll into this uh now that we know who you are thanks for sharing uh sure. there's yeah. there's even more to that too which we can unpack but yeah let's get into the meat of this episode so for this one um we wanted to take the time to define this term underwater archaeology uh, and i know that you're studying to become mm -hmm. that credentialed there is the right word uh, to, and we wanted to kind of help people understand it because, you know, it doesn't sound too complex when you say underwater archaeology, but, uh, it definitely elicits what the heck does that mean? There's some complexity and some really cool details to this. So I thought it'd be fun for us in this episode to kind of, you know, put on our Indiana Jones hat, get out our, our whip, our underwater whip and, uh, and, you know, dun, 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 yes. get into some underwater archaeology so you ready you ready to get into the meat of this um i as ready as i'll ever be i guess well you you'll be readier a year <laughs> from now when, <laughs> a year. when you're fully credentialed but what the heck let's do it anyways <laughs> yeah sure so um underwater archaeology huh I, I guess i mean the easiest way to explain coming from like a total side of ignorance because i don't actually work in this field yet fingers yet, crossed, yes um is that it's archaeology underwater you know studying history and studying archaeology and anthropology and basically everything that it kind of means to have like what we were what we came from as a species is a complex um scholastic field to unpack really um but as far as the underwater archaeology part of it goes, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's archaeology that takes place underwater. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> <laughs> boom, episode over. There it is. <laughs> what more do you need to know, right? On to episode two. Yeah, uh, no, exactly. Well, it's funny because like, I, so I am truly ignorant in the sense that like this is not a, uh, not a, a subject that I have 
you know, delved into very deeply uh, until prepping for this episode. And so I found, you know, Noah, the National Oceanographic, you know, gurus, we'll just put it that way, define it like this. So I, I literally copied and pasted it's underwater archaeology is the systematic documentation and recovery of information from submerged artifacts and underwater sites for the interpretation of past human cultures. So exactly what you said, it's how do we understand where we came from? We do a lot of this on land, right? It's not, mm -hmm. not so complex when you think about it on land, but when you add the underwater bit, you know, there's a lot of obviously coastal change and waterway change that's taken place over thousands and millennia of years where there are artifacts and things to understand about where we came from, about how human beings evolved and, and how they lived in those times that now reside that once we're on land now reside underwater or, you know, events have happened like earthquakes or floods or tsunamis and things that have taken places that were once on land and now they're underwater. And so mm -hmm. it's really that study of how not only, you know, we live and the artifacts that live underneath the water, but I think the nuance here too, that's cool is that it's also the study of how we have as humans have interacted with that water, whether it be oceans, seas, rivers, lakes, because water obviously is a, is a vital <clears throat> resource for us as humans. Um, we've always found civilizations next to a fresh water source or a water source of some sort. And so the interaction with that is also part of this uncovering of underwater archaeology, which is super interesting. So um, I think it's cool. I think it's a cool subject. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you said, it, all of human history for is really connected to the water. I mean, you go back to like the Bronze Age, all the way back to like the the first sailors or people, uh, what a lot of people refer to as the first sailors were the Ubaid people. Uh, it's U-B-A-I-D, I think is how they spell it. Um, and, you know, you're looking at just like how they made little reed boats and put those together to start uh, working on irrigation and moving up and down rivers, going all the way through Egypt and the significance of like the Khufu ship. And when they found that and the religious aspects to that as well. So thousands and thousands of years, people have had a huge connection to the water for trade, for life, for growing crops. And, um, you know, like you mentioned, like, uh, like natural disasters, even like parts of cities that were once on land and earthquakes and tidal waves and tsunamis put, um, crazy artifacts that in some ways are better preserved because they never got touched again by people um, can still be found underwater. So um, connecting the, the historical and the anthropological anthropology portion of um, understanding people and being able to access it to where it was not easily like where you couldn't access it scuba diving is still a relatively new concept if you look at like egypt like there are ancient egyptians who studied even more ancienter egyptians right so, <laughs> you know so for for maritime archaeology this is still a relatively new field and you're we're still exploring the bottom of our oceans and finding things um you know just small things like pottery like the shape of the amphorae found on old egyptian or greek or roman ships can 
divulge tons of information about trade routes and how different ancient civilizations interacted with each other. So, you know, using the tools and everything that we use to find that stuff, like sonar, uh, different profiles, mapping the underwater environment with magnetometers and all that stuff. And then going through the excavation and the salvage work of bringing back and preserving and photographing and documenting artifacts has gone, uh, done tremendous strides for our understanding of the ancient world and sort of where we came from as a species. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, you know, there's a recent story I, I was, I was reading about where, there was a a Dutch trading ship that was, you know, before there were banks, right? Um, The the transactions of banking happened over the seas, right? So if you wanted to, you know, move money, you had to literally move money. And that Mm -hmm. happened in, in the sea, all right, on a boat. And so there were a lot of these treasury ships that that left port and and sank for one reason or another. And there's one in particular, a, a Dutch uh, treasury ship that had sunk in, and hadn't been discovered for years. And they discovered it. And of course, you know, there's there's this these two aspects. There's kind of the, and we should get into this a little bit. There's kind of the underwater ar- archaeological perspective of trying to understand it. And then there's the treasure hunting perspective. And there mm. were, you know, there were both of these perspectives represented. And, and although I think the, the, maybe the techniques and tools and, and even some of the, um, the diving is similar in, in those two things. I think the philosophy and, and maybe the intent is different. And so they were talking about, you know, recovering all of these coins. They found it, they found, you know, pieces of it and things and based on the cannons that were still there and so on and so forth. And what they uncovered was they did find, you know, the proper um, coins that were supposed to be on the boat. But then they also started finding all these other coins and they were asking the question, well, what's, why are all these other coins here? And as they started to dig through this and, and understand it more and more, they found, you know, that it was a confirmation of kind of a, a myth that had existed in the historical understanding of this type of trade, that there was a black market for coins because the coins were worth much more, almost double when you got to the East Indies from, from, you know, from the Netherlands. Um, than they were at the Netherlands. And so uh, they they would take coins from friends and family and then use those coins to buy spices and other things and then bring them those spices back across and then sell the spices for double and basically double your coins. It was, it was a common practice apparently. And yeah. they found because of the location of them all that it was kind of ubiquitous across the crew. So whether you were crew, captain, officers, whatever it would be, that everybody was involved in this practice of kind of this black market coin trade that existed. And that all came from uncovering and recovering these, this wreck with these coins. And so, I mean, that's kind of one of the, just a kind of anecdotal story of the, the contribution of our understanding um, of history and where we came from that underwater archeology span contributes to that I think is really, really cool mm-hmm. and, and helps us, you know, make sense of our past, our history, connect some dots that maybe are, you know, myths or, or things that we didn't know 
Uh, and as you know, the old saying says, you know, there's nothing new history repeats itself, right? It's a, it's a cycle. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully you get better. We get better as a species every time we do it. And that that's part of the evolution of us. So I think it's a huge, a huge piece. I mean, history, obviously in archeology span in general plays a huge role, mm. but now, like you say, on being underwater is so new in the grand scheme of things that a lot of these sites, a lot of these discoveries are still virgin are still complete. We just don't know what's there. And so yeah. that it's a really interesting field. Yep. And, uh, I mean, like, I mean, before we go back on, um, I guess like the treasure hunting aspect of it, there is a huge difference between treasure hunting and archaeology. And a lot of people call themselves like amateur archaeologists, but they don't really go through the scientific method of kind of contributing to understanding of, you know, history and all that. And a lot of like, if you take something off of a shipwreck, you know, like that's, it's gone. You know, you may not think it's very significant now, but a hundred years 200 years from now, you might have an archaeologist that wants to go down there and look at the shipwreck and not realize why that wreck is missing a porthole off the side of it or why the bell is missing. And you've destroyed, or at least maybe not necessarily destroyed, but you've hidden a piece of history from the future understanding of um, people that are going to study us. If right. that makes sense. And so there's there's a long term consequence to pillaging shipwrecks and taking treasure and treasure hunting and a lot of artifacts are um, kind of I don't want to say it's like public property, but the, the knowledge that comes with studying um, history and art, artifacts and archaeology and understanding ourselves, that is knowledge that does belong to the public and by taking that and treasure hunting and destroying that evidence you take away from future generations understanding of what it was like to actually be us mm -hmm. uh, which is a sad thing when you think about it you know, yeah i don't want to be forgotten i don't want to just be some like you know piece of dust in the wind oh Greg, i'll always remember you don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no this is it's an interesting thing right because how do you balance these two things because you know there there is a feeling like i discovered it right mm -hmm. and it's there for the taking so i think about like you know the the famous you know wrecks and things the 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 china fever that existed out on you know the, like the, the northeast and divers and northeast divers all these things right the wahoo all these all these stories that come out and there is you know a, this kind of an artifact of my dive right mm. um even even you know at your local dive site in the quarry or in in the lake or wherever it would be you know bringing back a little bit of treasure a little bit of that underworld even if it's a shell you know, or something like that. People, people are attracted to that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's even these bags and things to, to go and get stuff. Right. And so, you know, how do you balance those two things? What, what has historical relevance um, and what doesn't, and, and how do you navigate those two sides of the coin versus, you know, the treasure hunting and, and what has archeological or historical relevance, I think is a tough nut to crack. And, and, and for the, average you know dummy like me uh, you know my rule is i just don't take anything because i don't know you know mm -hmm. what i mean and so like i'm not going to touch it um but 
but there are others that, that are more knowledgeable. There are others that are, have a different motivation possibly than I do. So I don't know what, what's your thoughts there? Cause I, I'm not sure if I have an opinion. I just don't know enough to have one yet, um, there, but you do. Um, I mean, this it's, it's an opinion. Um, if you're going to take something from a dive site, if you're going to take more than pictures and leave more than bubbles, um, you should be doing it through a scientific methodology that is attributed to some sort of preservation and better understanding of whatever you're taking from, you know? So if you work with, um, cause like you don't have to be an underwater, you don't have to be an archeologist to do underwater archeology span stuff. There are plenty of, um, you know, like, uh, internships and there's ways to volunteer and work for non-for-profits that properly go through a methodology of doing good science and good history. So if you're going to be a part of, you know, taking stuff off of wrecks and, you know, keeping it or donating it to a museum or whatever, doing it the right way scholastically through a true archaeological study or a historical study and documenting it and taking those artifacts and preserving them and putting them in a place that they can be of continued use, like in a museum or in a library or wherever um, that uh, wherever source that people can look to for knowledge. Um, I think that's probably the best way to do it. You know, if you want to get into treasure hunting, put a moral or ethical code behind it and do it for a good reason. And maybe they'll put your name on a plaque somewhere in front of the exhibit and then you'll get your, your little dive artifact. There you go. You know? Yeah. Cause I think, I think one of the key things here that you brought up a minute, a minute ago, but maybe to give some language to it is, is that a lot of these sites, whether they be shipwrecks or cities or, or whatever it might be, right. Uh, you know, old agricultural spaces, whatever, whatever you're in the site, they're considered quote unquote, non-renewable, which means that once we interact with them as divers, whatever we do, even if we silt them up in some way, but not, not as bad, but when we start taking stuff from them, they can't be put back to where they were. Uh, in other words, we're, we're degrading the, the data or we're losing information. Uh, the minute that we start interacting and taking things from them, because the, you know, the, the story I was telling earlier about the, the coins, the reason that they drew the conclusion that it was ubiquitous across the crew is because of the location relative to uh, other spaces of the ship, the wreck of where they found these. So they said, look like this is captain's quarters and crew quarters. So this, this is all over the place. So that location where they found them yeah. actually matter, not just, not just that they found them, but where they were matter in putting yeah. that, that story together. How much of where you found what, you know, were there more or less coins and were there more coins in the captain's quarters and there were in the crew quarters? Right. You know, if you have something like, you got to think from a historical uh, aspect too of putting yourself in the shoes of the people on that ship. Was there anything really on that ship that the captain didn't know what was going on? Right. You know, right. so that's another thing that you can sort of look at and see how involved the upper echelons of that chain of command really were in the ongoing lives of their crew members. Yeah. 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 Well, then I think maybe like a good, maybe a rule of thumb 
<laughs> Let's come up with with Jay and Greg's rule of thumb to uh, to balancing this. Like in my mind, I think okay, because it is. It, I've been on dives where you find something, and it's exciting. Like it is. You, oh my gosh! Because the whole time you're looking at stuff, and then all of a sudden you go like, "Whoa!" You know, even if it's a beer bottle, right? As, as silly as that sounds. Um, a good rule of thumb, I think, in general, is you can always come back. So document what you found, and then if you think you know you want to take it, <laughs> uh, then like get find a way to interact with, like you're saying, an actual archaeological uh, society or academic mm-hmm. research. Um, get connected in some way, which won't take a lot of work. Probably a couple questions, right? Mm-hmm. Go on out, Google. Hey, yeah, go on Google. Right, Google. Google did that for me. Yeah. Um, and then be able to say, hey, look, I found this thing. Here's a picture of it, or here's where it was. Here's the location. Um, I'd really like to take it. <laughs> like, or like, you know, or I'm going back to take it. Should I not? Mm-hmm. Right. Or whatever it would be. But at least there is that pause in that first anxiety and, and excitement of like, should I take it or should I not? And uh, and I think that that's a good, like you said, if you're going to get into the treasure hunting stuff, you know, do it with an ethic and a moral behind it. And I think those ethics and morals are to say, yeah, how does this contribute to our understanding collectively, publicly of these things? And if I just take it for myself as either monetary gain or something cool to hang on the wall or build a coffee table out of, you know, what am I, what, what is the cost, the larger cost there? And I think those are, you know, again, there's a little gray area here. There's not a, like not everything the beer bottle that's at the bottom of the lake, you know, the dive yeah, site. I'm not worried about the 2022 Coca-Cola can that you Yeah, right. exactly. You know? But right. like, you know, if you but find. But 100 years from now, they might be. You, right. You know, 100 years from now, I think there's there's probably enough Coca-Cola cans <laughs> out there. And we're know? safe to but take that's, the Coke. That's like if you, when you go like Megalodon tooth hunting off yeah. like the coast of North Carolina. Like I love going to find Megalodon teeth, right? Yeah. Like, am I really stealing from a paleontologist if I take one or two Megalodon teeth off the ocean floor out there? Like, that's, I mean, I don't, I, I, I doubt it, but I mean, who knows? Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. See, I don't this know. is the meat of the, this is the meat. <laughs> I don't know if we got a rule yet, but yeah, that's, yeah. this is the meat of the, of the debate in some ways uh, in, yeah. in terms of, where you are, but I think you're right. Like the, the ethic and the moral around it is what's most important. And then we figure out what to do from there. So there, there is a, conse- <laughs> there's a consequence to every action you take and whether or not those consequences will ever catch up to you is a totally different story. True. You know, true. Yeah. Spoken like a true MP. There you go. Oh, <laughs> don't do that to me. Jeez, oh, I thought well, I outed you. I outed you. I By know. the way, did you do your basic training at Camp Pendleton, or where did you do your basic? No, um, I went to boot camp at Paris Island in okay. uh, South okay. Carolina. I was, I was uh, curious because literally Camp Pendleton's like twenty yeah. minutes from my house, so I was curious. Oh, gr- I'm so sorry. Oh yeah, you're right by San Diego, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So you probably yeah. see all these guys with the tactical backpacks and the short. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. High and tight haircuts and their shirts tucked in and they're always wearing a belt, you know, yeah, yeah, the shoelaces yeah. go left over. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, and it's funny in my barbershop the other day, I was got my haircut cause I needed one. And there was a, um, old sign that said, uh, certified flat top specialist. 
<laughs> that definitely came from oh, no. Pendleton for sure. For sure. That was a, an advertisement for Pendleton. There's some first sergeant out there that goes out of his way to get his haircut there twice a week. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Because <laughs> top specialist. Yep. Well, good. Uh, you know, I think, I think that's super interesting now that we've kind of covered at least some of the, the topic, but mm -hmm. let's maybe get into how do you become one? So I'm a treasure hunter. I'm interested in it or I'm recovering <laughs> from that. Or look, this sounds super interesting. I just got into diving or I've been into diving for years and man, it would be really interesting to do some underwater archaeology. Like how, how do you become an underwater archaeologist? I mean, what's the process? Who do you work for? I mean, you know, when you, when you graduate and you are credentialed, like what types of jobs are you going to be looking for? What are the job posts out there? And, and kind of what is the pinnacle? Like, is there a, like, you know, a pinnacle of, of the industry where you're doing this type of underwater archaeology versus this type? I'm, I'm curious because I really don't know. Um, how I'll you let become... you know as soon as I figure it out. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm still working on my bachelor's degree. I'm not even close to uh, getting there. But I, I, it's a path I want to go down. Um, so as far as, because I, I just recently joined a, um, a non-for-profit 501-3C. Yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. the tax code. I'm not a accountant. Uh, Thank um, God. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, no offense so to accountants just, out there. I My just, brain doesn't work that way. Yeah, no. Oh, God, I, I can't do numbers like that. Um, but I just joined a um, an organization. It's a non-for-profit that does uh, underwater archaeological stuff. And they have a they're, – they're partners with the Nautical Association – Nautical Archaeological Association, the NAS. Um, and they do training. The, the NAS is mostly a European thing, but they do have some tie-ins here in the state in the States. And, uh, they, uh, they put volunteers and people that signed up for this 501 point, this 5013C, this non-for-profit through the NAS training for documentation and measurements and, um, all that stuff. So you, you can go and, I mean, even just like regular archeology, span you can look up like historical trusts and stuff for your state, like the Maryland Historical Trust. They look for volunteers to help out on digs and they'll like, you show up on site and they teach you how to dig and they set you up with someone more experienced and you work under the uh, supervision of a credentialed archeologist who is conducting the studies. So, if you want to just get into archaeology in general, you could start there. You can look for the non-for-profits that are established. Because the non-for-profits are really just established as basically businesses to get grant money to go and do this stuff. Mm -hmm. To work for, you know, governments or universities. Um, so you can look up uh, any of these historical trusts or any of these non-for-profits and see if you can get involved through that. Uh, if you actually want to be an archaeologist you need some sort of uh formal training or education through a university um so basically a master's or a phd in anthropology archaeology history um something like that but internships and volunteerism are a great way to start building your resume and start getting involved in it yeah so in other words you know there isn't a a specialty course to go get a C card for this, right? So there are, there are, there, some oh, there are. Okay. 
Well, they're, they're, they're not like a, it's not like a certification course you can get at your local dive shop. Um, right, right, right. They do have like scientific diving cards and stuff like that. But for the most part, if you're going to actually get into the, the meat and potatoes of true archaeological study, you have to go through a university. And there are some universities that offer courses and master's degrees in underwater archaeology as a specialization. No. So there's um, there's one program at ECU that I've been looking at for um, underwater archaeology, and they've got uh, all sorts of classes that go into like ship reconstruction and stuff like that. There's one at Texas A&M. Uh, mm -hmm. there's, uh, another one in my, at Miami university, Florida, I right? think, yeah. yeah, has an underwater archeology span program. So it's out there. Um, yeah, I think there's only like three or four in the whole country that I, with my research that I found that actually do this as a as master's a or PhD program. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, that I know, but if you can find more, let me know. Cause I'm going to have to apply to all of them eventually. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Exactly. So the, yeah. The accuracy by volume at that point. One of them has to accept me into the program. There you go. Exactly. There you go. That's a good way to think about it. Maybe yeah, I mean, after all this good publicity I'm giving them, they'll accept me in as a... There you go. You'll send them this podcast and see, look, this is why you should accept me. I'm also... Yeah. An internet star. Uh <laughs> <laughs> oh geez. The last thing I ever want to be is an internet influencer. Oh man, that's uh yeah. that's 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 a tough gig. We should do an episode on that. <laughs> what is dive internet in Instagram influencer? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, what is that? I have the face for it, obviously. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. Well was you were in a podcast on the UTD podcast a little while ago and I forget his name. Yeah, the, uh, the guy from Texas where he said that uh, I have a voice for print and uh, a face for radio or something. Yeah, yeah, Daniel, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, yeah. no, that was um Chris. Yeah, Chris, that's Chris. right. Yeah, Chris, the he's yeah, the, Chris. the skydiver, yeah. The skydiver, yeah. He's got that good Texas drawl. Yeah, oh, yeah. he talks. That's that, right. That slow Texas Southern slow drawl. Texas drawl. That's right. Yeah. No, that's cool. I mean, and I think too, if this is something that you're thinking about becoming an underwater archaeologist or or volunteering, and I think that's an amazing way to get involved. I mean, that Greg's kind of laying out here, and in, in that a lot of these organizations doing this work are not necessarily for profit. So they're they're not they don't have a big budget they're not making a job post out there and paying a bunch of people that that they rely on volunteerism and people that are interested in contributing to uh, the greater knowledge base that we can we can discover there i think uh, from my perspective again i think there's two things maybe to add to it is one is obviously this requires some dive skills <laughs> so please don't be the the diver that goes yeah i'm interested in this and then you know silts up the site and breaks yeah. a bunch of stuff because you can't control your buoyancy so you know i think i think thinking about your own training and your own skills and getting those things dialed in because as we mentioned these are non-renewable resources right so once you get in there and you mess something up um, if that's based on on a lack of your skills being you know dialed in uh, that, that can be a problem there's sensitive bottoms you're in unknown environments I think that your foundation sh you know needs to be strong to make sure to preserve that environment so mm -hmm. again that, there's a level of hey let's check in and make sure that I am am squared away 
with my own dive skills, I feel comfortable. That's been the theme of this season is this word comfortable, but I'm comfortable under the water uh, and feeling control of I can stop when I need to. I can get to where I need to go, all those sorts of things. And, and if you're honest with yourself, that takes time. It takes training. It takes effort to get to that place. Some, some I'm, I mean, I remember when I'm a new diver, I'd want to be over there. Or I'd mm. want to stop, but I, I couldn't. I didn't know how, or but I still felt like I wanted to contribute. I was so excited about it. So there's that piece. Yeah. And then I think uh, there's another. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no. I was going to say, um, you know, like th- that's what, what you were talking about, wanting to look like, or I want to be there. I want to go there. I want to look like that guy in the water. I think one of the most important things that someone can have, especially as a new diver, is a bit of humility. And recognizing yeah. that they need to work on something. Yeah. It's like, if and, you, and even older divers too, same thing. Oh yeah. 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 Especially, but like, you know, you were going about like, you know, you don't want to be the guy that drops into a piece of pottery and breaks it in half, <laughs> right. but you, you also don't want to be the guy that soaks up the whole dive site. Cause that makes it one, it makes everybody else's job much more difficult, but also like part of the, process is documenting and that means video and photography and if you silt up the whole area you're not getting anything done because you can't take the photographs you need to take before you salvage or collect these artifacts right so crashing into the bottom and stirring up the whole thing is a surefire way of costing whatever organization or university you're working for time and money even if it doesn't do any permanent damage yeah 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 i think that that's an important piece and it it always comes back to that right that diving is a skill and and it's a skill that we develop through practice and training and and effort um it's not just a you get in the water and oh whatever happens happens you know i think that that's a bad way to approach it whether you've been diving for 20 years or you've been diving for a year there's a level of hey can i get some proper evaluation and some proper feedback um, not just the C card to know that I'm, I'm comfortable and in control under the water before I decide that, Hey, I'll go in and dig up uh, some coins on this cool wreck here. Right. Uh, Cause <laughs> I think that there's, you know, even, I was even watching this documentary once uh, on treasure hunting more or less under the water. And I'm just going, Oh my gosh, these guys are such crap divers. Like if they just had a little bit of control, this would this this episode would be ten minutes long rather than the full hour they had to mm-hmm. just have them you know bumping into things and like all that stuff and so anyway that's that's my own little yeah you know, it's judgment of, uh, I know bad me shame on yeah. me but um, the other thing I was going to mention here too is I think that that there are academically driven uh, academically driven projects that exist out there and and those are really important. And, and places where we can volunteer. I think there are also local or publicly driven projects that can be spun up with, with the uh, affiliation and, and support and knowledge behind them of maybe an academic institution or a nonprofit that does these things that if there's, you know, we call them uh, UTD curiosity projects, you know, projects, Hey, I'm curious about this. How do I apply a scientific method to, to understand this better. And it's not just archaeology. It could be, you know, waterway conservation. It could be, um, you know, opening up new passages in, in a cave or something like that. But these citizen scientist projects, I think, are 
are really important as well. It's not to say that they should only be citizen science projects. Some of them, that's the scale. A university wouldn't get involved in some, some of these, right? Mm-hmm. In other ones, they can be generated from your own curiosity as a diver or something that you've discovered or something you've seen that you bring into that academic setting or into that nonprofit setting. And so I think that, that one, yeah, square away your dive skills if this is something you're interested in. And two is what are those curiosity projects that, that you have, right, in your local dive site, in the diving you've done? You know, why, you know how can you bring or sp- spin up a project um, and then what, what scale is that? Is that really kind of, Hey, I'm a citizen scientist and take some pictures, show them, um, you know, see if I can recover these artifacts, uh, if I get the green light there and that's the end of it, or does it become a much bigger academic pursuit, um, that you really found something and, and there's, it warrants that type of effort and things. So I think those are ways that you can get involved in this practice of underwater archeology, span uh, and helping contribute to kind of our understanding of of human beings interactions with waterways and, and the artifacts that exist under, under the water there. Yeah. I mean, you can take, I guess, really almost any sort of scientific field and apply it to the underwater world. Geology, for example, I mean, people study caves, speleological, the speleological society, Mm -hmm. I think is the big one that does work with the WKPP. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, like that's all under underwater science. You know, um, I think probably the only thing that you really can't relate to the underwater world outside of like the NASA neutral buoyancy lab is like astronomy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, but well, tides, I mean, tides and uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. There all you those go. things the moon yeah. and the tides yeah. and sure. Uh, I, I don't know if that'd be considered more oceanography, but there's, there's certainly an interdisciplinary approach to everything scientific you know um you needed underwater archaeologists need the help of anthropologists and historians and you know it's it's not just one career field that makes the magic happen it's a team effort right so well good well let me let's wrap this one up here in the end if if there's any advice that we might have for people. So you've listened to this, you go, Oh, this is cool. I didn't know about this practice or this field. And yeah, I want to look into how, how I can get involved. Um, you know, do we have any advice that we might offer in terms of getting involved, you know, as a, uh, whether it's recreational or a hobbyist all the way up to, I'm going to go get my PhD in this. Um, what, what do you think? What are some, some maybe thoughts you have? I mean, I haven't, I haven't gotten there yet. So it's kind of hard for me to, to, uh, spit out any advice other than what I've had relayed on to me. Yeah. Um, But just taking the first steps to get involved, um, go in open-minded volunteer and see if you can gain some hands-on experience and network and see what other steps you can do to get closer to your goal. You know, if you just keep doing the next thing that you have to do, eventually you'll get there. So that's what I'm yeah. doing. Yep. Yeah. And I think, I think too, for me, my only two cents to add here is, you know, that, that whole pseudo archeology, span pseudo history that you're talking about before, uh, right? <laughs> um, you know, I think that these are, these are things to, to maybe avoid in a way of getting yes. involved, right? As, as much as I would love 
for it to be true and would love to be the one to find it. I unfortunately do not think Atlantis is a real thing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the, the the closest to uh, I mean I, I was a big fan of that what was it like 1999 Atlantis movie from Disney the animated one oh Great yeah film. I forgot about uh, that one inspired a whole generation of Atlantis enthusiasts um, but I think the closest thing to like a real Atlantis was probably the Mycenaeans mm-hmm. in Plato's writing but it's I don't know it's not. Yeah. Really- James Cameron is after it, man. He's after oh, it. Oh, you know, you know what? I, I hope he finds it. I, I genuinely hope I'm wrong because yeah. I would be the happiest person in the world if Atlantis was a real place. I just don't. Yeah. I, I can't. I can't back it. I can't do it. <laughs> you can't get there, huh? No. Are there any flying saucers under under the ocean somewhere? You oh, think? For, for sure. I mean, we for sure. The, the <laughs> for sure, the government has been lying to us about aliens this whole time. But yeah, yeah. Know, so that's where they really are. are. Aliens, the the government saying that they're not real, you know they're real. Plato yeah. saying that it's real, it's not real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, you can't trust that that Plato dude. Can't trust. He asks too many questions. Those I mean, silly the, the, philosophers. The, that stupid Socratic method uh, that he <laughs> he subscribes to with the you know his pals there. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's yeah, just I a, mean just a good. He's a goon for big philosophy. That's all. <laughs> Yeah, that's all it is. It's, they just ask why a lot. It's no good to talk about those things. Yeah, and I think too, like, like anything, you know, the the network that you develop. I mean, it sounds like for you, that's been a huge part of this. You know, the network that you've developed and cultivated and been a part of, but it's also that you've contributed to in a lot of ways. So, I think that that's part of part of the community aspect of diving is whatever type of diving you're getting into is that network. It's, it's a small world. The more and more that I get involved in diving, the more I realize just how small of a world it is in terms of, of people and everyone kind of knows everybody in some way. Uh, or, you know, it's like the, was it the seven points of connection to Kevin Bacon? I, don't, I forget <laughs> I forget what? Yeah, like there's always like there's this game i forget what it's called someone's gonna totally call me out on this but it's like you can name any actor and within seven movies get back to a movie that he was in with kevin bacon or she was in with kevin bacon this sounds like like a uh saturday night live skit it might have been i don't know where it came from but yeah it's like seven degrees of Kevin Bacon or something like that seven degrees of, okay i'm gonna have to look this one up yeah they, yeah look, I, don't don't quote me on it Familiar. But it, it is a thing. It's, it's it's a thing. I know it's a thing. I just don't know the title of it. So someone's gonna gonna reach out to us and tell us, you know, hey idiots, it's this thing. But I think what we should do for episode three is we should do the seven steps of Kevin Bacon to underwater archaeology. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Here's this pirate ship that sunk out in well, Jamaica. Well, How does see, it connect I, to Kevin Bacon? Underwater archaeology <laughs> is a study. Goes to universities. Universities teach art. Filmmaking is an art. This is a movie about underwater archaeology. Movies have actors. Kevin Bacon is an actor. Oh, well, see, look, you see, you played the game. I can go (laughs) faster. I'll I'll beat you in it. I'll do one degree. No, two degrees. Underwater archaeologists are human beings. Human beings eat bacon. Some human beings eat bacon, <laughs> and Kevin Bacon. His last name is Bacon. So there that's we go. three. That's three steps. <laughs> three three degrees. There are three mm, degrees. Okay, fair enough. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> ooh, I don't know if I could beat two. 
Yeah. I'll, have to, I'll have to sleep on that one. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, next episode, we'll see what comes out. Well, good. Well, Greg, it's been a, a blast uh, on this show. I mean, gosh, it's such a big topic. Uh, hopefully, yeah. we've at least given uh, a little bit of justice to the tip of the iceberg here. Um, but yeah, today we focused on this underwater archaeology subject. And if you're out there listening to this, we want to hear your thoughts. Uh, if you have your full credential uh, and have a recommendation on which school Greg should actually apply to, uh, that would be great for him. Uh, reach out. Or if you're interested in this, what, what's interesting about it to you? Um, so please reach out. Let us know your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you as always. Um, and yeah, any parting thoughts, Greg, that you've got going on? Yeah, if you are an underwater archaeologist and you have some uh, advice for me, um, or if you have a, jo a job opening, <laughs> you, think I'd be in, you think I'd be a good fit for it? Um, yeah, let me know. You can. Uh, I don't know. Should I just give them my email? Is that allowed? Uh, uh, yeah, sure. that, that's up to you, man. That's uh, that's totally Maybe, up to you. You know what? I'll, I'll hold off on that and make them listen to the next two episodes. There you go. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but, um, end of episode three, you will reveal your your email address. Yes, which is and, like uh, big sexy Greg Wolf at. Oh yeah, with my my podcast voice. <laughs> Yahoo Mail dot geo dot gov dot org. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, if uh, you enjoyed this episode and you want to keep growing in the community, uh, join us by making sure you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or Apple or whatever we're streaming on right now in your home or in your car and uh, get notified when episodes drops. drop. Um, what about you? You got anything? No, I, I think it's just fun. I, I'm, I, I honestly want to go watch Indiana Jones right now. I think there's a new one coming out, actually, isn't there? Or is it already out? I think it's already out. Okay. Okay. I haven't seen yeah. it. I don't know. I mean, Indiana Jones destroys every archaeological site he touches. Is he? This is true. Is he, is he really an archaeologist? Does he follow the scientific method? Yeah, but but that, <laughs> he's not the one destroying. It's the Nazis and the ghosts and the... All those other guys that are destroying, he's just, you know, he's there you know for, the, he, he for the He is love. going in there for the sake of collecting uh, artifacts and preserving them. So maybe he is a good archaeologist. Maybe you're yeah. right. Maybe just yeah. the universe is working against him. Yeah, I think I think it's, those Nazis just have it out for him. And he, yeah. you know, unfortunately has to interact with them. And that's just the way it goes for him. I, I don't know. I feel bad for him. But, um, you know. Yeah. I, I would, I just, those movies were so amazing as a kid for me. It's just like, you know, but the new ones just have not hit for me. I don't know. It's just, yeah. it just doesn't, it just doesn't do it. It's, it's not the, uh, the Harrison Ford that we, uh, get off on. my plane. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. You know, speaking uh, of Indiana Jones, you know that uh, there's one scene in one of the older movies where uh, he comes face-to-face uh, -face with a guy uh, wielding a scimitar, and this dude is, like, doing all these, like, fancy moves, and he pulls out his revolver and shoots him. Yeah. Apparently, the part of that movie, he was, like, actually supposed to fight the guy, but uh, Harrison Ford uh, improvised, just, like, kind of, like, smirking at him a little bit and then pulling out his revolver and shooting him as part of the scene because he was sick that day and he didn't really like want to go through like the fight <laughs> sequence of it. So that apparently, I, I don't know how true this is, but apparently he just made that up and they 
I guess the director liked it so much that they shot it a second time or a third time and they ended up adding that part into the script. Well, there so, you go. Things you should know back. about yeah. underwater archaeology. Yeah. Is that that Harrison gunshot. Ford. Harrison Ford is a great actor, just like Kevin Bacon. There you go. See, Harrison Ford <laughs> to steps. Kevin Bacon. How many steps? <laughs> there we go. See, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, great. Uh, looking forward to episode two. Uh, Greg, thanks again for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me.